What do you mean, who cares? We have... To, I've told everyone in the world we're going to fight. Yeah, and we'll fight. Because I'm not scared of you, mate. You're not going to just sit here and bully me and my mate. I'm not trying to bully you. We agreed. Well, yeah, all right. It's an agreement, mate. And I will fight. I'm not scared of you. Let's have that now, right? I'm not fucking scared of you. Let's get out and just do this. Listen, give me, your, give me your phone, because I don't trust either of you fucking worms. Give me your phone. All right, get... You're, you're gonna record this. That's your phone, yeah? So you can't run off. Give me your phone. Listen. Bruv. Listen. Listen. Nah, mate. Nah, mate. Listen. Nah, listen. We promised you a good night. You tried. You didn't try. I tried. Right. Listen. Listen. Right. Listen. Let me tell the camera. So listen. Listen. Stay there. No kicks. No knees. No. Boxing only. Punches only. Yeah. Punches only. Fair enough. First one to quit. I ain't scared. Loses. I ain't scared, mate. All right. Let's go. Alright, alright. Let me take my jacket off. Wait, wait, wait. First one to, first one to quit loses. Yeah, I Stay scared. there, stay there, stay there. First one to quit loses. Alright, my watch. Hold my watch, hold my watch. Hello and welcome back to your free TF. Free TF. Free TF. Today, in a brand new configuration, never before seen, I, Riley, am here with Hussein on the uh, on the phone from New York. Yes, hello. Upstate New York. Um, nothing's happening. Like, I'm literally in a place where nothing happens. So, no updates today. Hussein calling in from the Twin Peaks town. <laughs> and we also we also have Tom Cavassi, director of the IPPR, in studio with us today. Tom, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I, uh, I'm very well. I'm very well. And we are here to ask um, this, uh, this, this, this prominent mind in uh, left policymaking exactly what the deal is with that Yu-Gi-Oh! demon that has a dragon for a dick. <laughs> okay, well, okay. I like to consider myself as an expert in Japanese anime. Yeah. So, so obviously I have a, a strong point of view on this. <laughs> okay, so, all right. So um, I don't know how much context I have to give because I feel like this is only a joke that's really suited for like the super TF fans, like the ones who keep going on dating apps and asking women whether they've been on Trash Future or like whether they've listened to Trash Future. That's just you and Riley, basically. There are several guys who have done this. I want to say, first of all, thank you. Um, and also and also just stop like it doesn't work right there's no there's no universe where like this will get this will get you late uh, like no world and trust you saying he's no tried world, no no real world no, Digi really no digimon world no Yu-Gi-Oh world and speaking of which then we have to ask ourselves the question does necro the shadow lord have a dragon for a dick so this story begins when <laughs> So I'm so so I, I'm I'm in this very remote part of America at the moment where like the, I, I'm here to finish writing my book and I have no choice but to do it because there's literally nothing else to do. Um, so as obviously as you'd expect, I'm kind of procrastinating as much as I can online, and I found this I, I found this clip on YouTube of the popular anime series Yu Gi Oh where like the last episode of the the sixth season, which has only really aired in Japan, because like it basically stopped airing in the West, in like you know the West when everyone became gamers. Um, and in this particular episode, all the the heroes have to face off against like the final, you know, the final boss, right? You know how like anime works. The final boss is a guy called Necro, the Shadow Lord. He's like the Lord of the Shadow Realm, and when he is unleashed from this like tomb, um, he's this giant swole demon who has a dragon dick. Uh, 
and it's yo i know what this is i know what this is this is just ben garrison drawing donald trump yes, the final yes, form yes yes this is this is effectively what a ben garrison cartoon would be once he like completely loses it so like the funniest thing about this image when he posted it on twitter like several times um is about like the actual shadow lord he has this like really demonic face he's gonna like fuck some shit up he's just lifted some weights you know he you know he's he, he he hasn't masturbated for like five years he's fucking tanked the dragon that he's like supposedly sitting on just looks exhausted it looks exasperated right <laughs> it looks it just looks like this like necro has just been on like a month-long wank fest and he's still going he's still going so he's I don't know if he's, 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 he might be Andrew Tate. I'm not really sure. <laughs> well, this, is, I, this, is, this is what I imagine Andrew Tate thinks he looks like when he's challenging random people on Twitter <laughs> to a fight. So, <laughs> Andrew while, Tate's whilst, while stuck in it. Like, I don't know if we're, I, I, I don't know if we're going to talk about the Andrew Tate stuff, but like, I saw it, I saw it late last night over here and I imagine it must've been quite early in the morning, but like, it was the funniest thing that I've seen because like, every time you look at it, it gets more funny, right? Like oh absolutely you know, he's just got, so it's it, he, he he starts off the video by saying but oh yeah I've been like jumped on in like Romania I've been like knives are pulled on me guns have been pulled on me but they've always been so much more fun in London than London because I'm really bored here and everyone's doing cocaine I mean it turns out that he's in some random place in like Hemel Hempstead no this is what he's doing is he's is it a Nando's yeah. <laughs> he's he is acting out he's acting out a 2018 version of Finnegan's Wake essentially that's what this man is doing it just it just you know, Andrew, yeah. Andrew Tate's life is cyclical to me it just to me it just felt like because I grew up in a place that was like Hemel Hempstead it was like this one of these really boring places which was sort of like bordered London but wasn't quite there um you know it, it, it felt as if like it was kind of just this very boring English suburban town where like there were two clubs and you can imagine how the clubs were, right? They just played like, you know, um, 90s and early 2000s, like, you know, disco mixed with grime and everyone did cocaine or like they were doing like, you know, um, helium balloons and stuff and like Nosgas and helium balloons because there's like nothing else to do, right? Like it's too expensive to go to London, but like you just can't be fucked doing anything else. And this is kind of what makes these towns like work, right? You know, you don't... Was that Potter's Bar? <laughs> if, 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 if you want to go for a mad night out, like you don't go to Hemel Hempstead. It's like saying I want to go to a mad night yeah, you out. You go to Transnistria. It's like saying you're going to go. Yeah, you go to Tiraspol. <laughs> it's like it's like because it, oh, that's where it's really it, happening. It, Having been to Tiraspol, I can tell you it's mad. It's, it's like it's like going for a mad it's night really out not. in New York and then ending up in Albany, <laughs> which is which is how you got to where you <laughs> which are. Which is how I am. All right. right. <laughs> so we're actually we're actually here to ask the real questions about British politics. Uh, we are here to t- to tackle the next tough question. Why do liberals love Harry Potter so fucking much? Why can't they read another book? It's got to be said, this is about magical thinking, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, magical thinking is a delight and an indulgence. If you feel like you have power and you can just wave a wand and the world will change to how it's to make it how you want it to be, that's pretty attractive. Yeah, and I think it's I think it's especially attractive to liberals because it allows them to have a demonstrable effect on the real world without having to sacrifice anything, organize in any way, or, you know, actually act. It's it's basically just a way that like makes your wishes become reality. Well, then, what- I think I think you say liberals, but I think actually you mean elites. Yeah. Because I think there's something particularly elite about it, isn't there? There's something about saying, well, I'm used to being in such a position of power that when I snap my fingers um, shit happens, what? and that's kind of the Harry Potter story. Well, wasn't the Harry Potter yeah. the Harry Potter universe is like very like uniform and organized, right? Like the whole thing is like based on this idea that you have this magical world which is sort of built on like precarious finance, 
um, where like every <laughs> where everything revolves around these like four schools and like you know you know that's how the system works right we don't really know, we actually don't really know much I've only seen like the films I haven't I've I read a few of the books like when I was younger but we don't really know that much about the Harry Potter universe right except that it's very small um, most of it's filled with like posh you know grammar school private school kids there's like this one little town which has a few bars it sounds exactly like Albany in some respects right <laughs> um, and then like in the final movie like there's this kind of big showdown with like Voldemort and you know all the all the evil people right um, and the, the strange thing was was that like in Harry Potter there is like a form of organization right like at some point Harry and a few of the other kind of senior students are like okay like debasing isn't going to work we're not going to be able to like change the system we have to like adopt some form of like defensive violence um i don't know if i'm like i don't know if this is the right film i'm talking about or whether i'm just thinking about crank um (laughs) 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 which is which is like where a lot of our like movie conversations end up going anyway it always ends up in crank Uh, the greatest movie ever made i I vaguely remember that like they had you know they had to like do at least some form of like organizing and like offensive protests and stuff like that um so even like even if you take the harry potter analogy like they're only taking very selective and twee bits from it right um well instead of battling evil wizards uh what i've noticed a lot of like usually middle class usually liberals just endlessly marching to stop brexit they're just marching and marching and marching and all they do and they started just by sort of asking those in power to intercede on their behalf because they just expect people to do that and now i think they're i think they've become a cargo cult because i'll say like the you know a little peek behind the curtain the three of us have been very fascinated by some of the uh the protest actions against brexit that have been happening today my personal favorite is the guy who spent uh, like probably 20 pounds getting the entire Brexit deal printed out on paper so he could burn it with a flamethrower in front of parliament and, and during a wind what? during a windy day as well what the fuck <laughs> Well, I liked him, but I actually liked the guy next to him who'd got a massive sort of papier-mâché version of the deal (laughs) and then was taking a sledgehammer to it. And that kind of neatly sums it up, doesn't it, right? You've got something you don't like, so you attack the symbols. In fact, you make it into a big fucking symbol by printing it out in huge form. And then you take sledgehammer to paper, which kind of sums up uh, pretty much the strategy of of hard remainers, right? It kind of encapsulates it quite, quite poetically. Oh, Hussein, what was your favorite My one? My favorite one was a trampoline guy. So this is the first thing I woke up to this morning, right? <laughs> the first tweet that I woke up to this morning was a guy wearing like a, you know, wearing a scarf, like wearing a backpack and bouncing on a trampoline, which said, stop. And he goes, and he just like randomly just says like somewhere in between like bollocks to Brexit. And like, he's just doing it on his own, right? And it's kind of like this very, I don't know, like it feels like something that will eventually end up in an Adam Curtis documentary. Uh, before it like cuts back to like 1980s Afghanistan um, it was just like yeah this really bizarre thing that really captures a lot of what Tom was saying which is you know that they you know everything is to kind of like attack the aesthetic symbols without you know much like politics right um, it goes back to what we've spoken about in previous episodes where you have a certain you know you have this class of people who just like want to go back to how things were and it kind of feeds into this culture which is shaped which is kind of occupied by both really hard brexiters and the really hard remainers which was that we're looking we know you know we're pining for this nostalgia this beautiful time except in the remainers case like that beautiful time was when like hugh grant was you know doing films and 
uh, Love Actually was like politics and stuff like that, right? Uh, <laughs> it's, I think that's exactly true. I, you know, it's it's somewhere between for me anyway. It's somewhere between a cargo cult and a um, like like a Christian preacher preacher in Florida just like burning a bunch of Qurans. Like obviously that's more of a, a hate crime, but it's like I, I'm I'm made infuriated by this thing. I'm powerless to do anything about, and so I'm just going to demolish all of its symbols as a kind of way to get out my outrage and expect that to be politically effective. It's just it's another version of what I call the politics of setting yourself on fire and dragging yourself, kicking and screaming into hell. It was just this. It was just this. Like it felt like this really weird moment because it's like this deal, like. No one likes the, the conservative deal, right? As far as I'm, as far as I'm aware, like everyone, like for the most part, all the kind of really loud people are against it. And even on one of the tweets, it was like, yeah, you've got like these anti, anti, like you know, these hard Brexiters who are anti the deal, who are doing these really cringeworthy protests, and then you've also got these Remainers who are doing all these cringeworthy protests. And it sort of feels as if like it's vacuous because there isn't even any like kind of opposition anymore. It's just like protesting for the sake of protesting and did you, do you know what i mean like i guess like eve just being out of the uk it's rage it's just rage yeah it's but it's kind of this weird it's like this sort of like weird rage for the sake of rage right um it's like rage without kind of like well what are we actually arguing as a better alternative and i think that's actually what we're what we're going to get into because we are here today now that we've exhausted all of our material on demons with dragon dicks and and harry potter um, I think that's actually that's a good transition into the Brexit stuff. Realistically, all I can say is because the, it is all I can say is the, dra- the dragon dick would have definitely burnt the the deal like the the, the deal printout. <laughs> dragon dick four pm. <laughs> um, no, so uh, so I think that a lot of these these protests are just sort of magical thinking against Brexit. Um, it is also like the death of metaphor at this point. Everything's literal. Um, but let's 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 rewind a little bit. So as we often say on this show, 40% of our audience is American, and so probably have only a passing knowledge of what Brexit is. So first, Tom, can you sort of like encapsulate the sort of what's going on, and then we'll sort of move into why we're finally talking about it? Yeah, sure. So wh- why is Brexit bad? If you, if you look at this, it's, we spent the last 40 years integrating ourselves into a single European economy. Right? That's been the direction of travel for 40 years. So the best analogy is to say, imagine that you were the United States and you were trying to pull California out of the US. If you tried to do that, it would be incredibly complicated. And people say, well, how would you do that, right? We're a single economy. Yes, there are different things in the States, but hey, this is an economy as a whole. So the core reason that it's bad is precisely because we spent so long integrating ourselves and therefore Brexit account, uh, the European Union accounts for nearly half of our foreign trade. Um, But it goes beyond that, right? It's not just the economics of it. It's also about um, amplifying British power and influence around the world by belonging to the world's most powerful and successful trading bloc, the common foreign and security policy. uh, That means both foreign affairs, but also basic domestic security, right? So European arrest warrants and all other sort of mechanisms as well. And fundamentally, if you think that the challenges that we face in the 21st century are um, more global than they are local, then it makes sense to try and solve them together. So whether it's climate change or the rising power of global corporations, there is a logic to saying, well, the more that you can cooperate with your friends and neighbours, the more successful you'll be in the world. So that's the core reason that that, that Brexit seems like a pretty bad idea. Sure. I think I think part of the problem in all of this is 
it's a sort of misfiring in the sense that the problems that people observe and think are to do with Brexit are actually problems that are domestically created. So a lot of the issues that people are unhappy about actually have sod all to do with the European Union. Um, they are the choices that have been made in Westminster, not choices that have been made in Brussels. And for 40 years, British politicians have played a game. And you can see this in the States as well, right? So politicians say everything good is something that they did at home and everything bad comes from Washington. Well, our politicians have done exactly the same thing. They've said all good things have come from Westminster and all bad things have come from Brussels. And the truth is more complicated than that. And actually, most of the problems and the core reasons that people are unhappy have much less to do with the European Union and much more to do with choices made at home. I mean, crudely, I think this is a bit of blowback for never coming to terms with the end of the British Empire on a kind of cultural side uh, and therefore being unwilling and unable to cooperate with other countries. And I think the other side of this is the blowback um, from the sort of vicious deindustrialization uh, that took place under Thatcher. And if you have so many communities kept behind, it's not surprising that they reach a point um, where where they say no more. And the target has been the EU, but I think that the, the right target, the people are right to be angry about a lot of this stuff, um, but the right, the, the right target is in Westminster and not in Brussels. Mm. So I think one, one thing I, th- I find sort of very sort of interesting about this is you can, you can, I think, see quite a bit of the sort of almost baseless sort of extreme right-wing roots of this in that like a lot of the criticism of the Brexit deal May's been able to negotiate, which we'll get onto soon, from people like David Vance, seems to just be that what they actually want is they want May to send a team of like SAS soldiers to like fast rope into Brussels and just perforate the entire European Commission. Like they seem to just want they have this lust for like conflict almost where the idea of they want to send the gunboats right they want to shell the continent precisely that's kind of the kind of point that they would like to get to right it's not just they don't like the eu it's something much more visceral than that yeah and i think it's about this sense of a loss of status in the world that in their mental schema for how the world works you know britain is the nation on top you know the second world war meant that we had to share that spot with the Americans and that anything that keeps us from being the top nation um, is somehow a, a problem. And they see the European Union as a means for keeping Britain down rather than for amplifying us up. And it's just a failure to engage with the real state of the world as it is today and the real reality, which is that Britain is a mid sized European. Uh, economy. It's important and influential in the world, but not in the way that it once was. And that to be successful in the 21st century, we need to cooperate with our friends and neighbours. And so what's happened is over the last sort of two, a, a couple of years ago, basically, after Britain left the European Union, after it triggered Article 50, which again, for Americans is the sort of begins the withdrawal process. Um, we have had this sort of almost like a cottage industry of speculating and protesting and trying to read tea leaves and like you know getting uh, the Romaniacs logo tattooed on your forehead or whatever, either in support of or in protest of Brexit. It has been the issue in your in British politics that has broken everyone's brain because it has revealed just these fundamental contradictions. Uh, and you know, incidentally, like especially I talk about this in commie book clubs. Uh, I talk about the ways that sort of capitalism sustains itself by either moving its contradictions ahead into the future, as with climate change or moves them sort of geographically far away as with sort of like, say, um, getting cheap labor abroad or what have you, and then keeping it out with borders, or it moves them down the class structure as it might with so over-policing minority neighborhoods. In this case, Britain, ha- the British right, has tried to move the contradictions up 
to a more powerful structure, which has just bounced the contradictions right back down at it, which is why it has reached this impasse. But we've finally negotiated a withdrawal agreement from the European Union. I don't fully understand it. <laughs> Tom? Yeah. So so the important so you hear a lot being said about the deal, right? Yes. And we've got to be be clear what I what, saw someone take a sledgehammer to it. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> um so this is what's what's quite striking about it. You need to look back at the original agreement in the first European summit that took place after uh the referendum vote. And what they said at that uh, that um, summit was was broadly three things. Firstly, no negotiation uh, without um, uh, before Article Fifty uh, notification. So they simply wouldn't talk until the UK had notified on, under Article Fifty. Second thing is a common Euro- unified European approach. So British diplomats were sent off to all different European capitals to try and sort of understand what people's priorities and different desires were in a kind of attempt to divide and conquer. And uh, all the EU 27 stood firm and basically sent them back and said, nope, we don't negotiate with you. We negotiate through Barnier uh, and the European Commission. And the third thing, and this is the really important thing, was that there would be no discussion about the future trading relationship until a withdrawal agreement was concluded. So the withdrawal agreement gets us out of the European Union, but the negotiations on the future partnership won't commence in substance until we've actually left. And that's really important. So the withdrawal agreement, all it does, it's the legal text. It takes us out and it then puts us into this incredibly vulnerable position. So the political declaration is a statement of intent, right? But it has no legal force. And so the withdrawal agreement gets us out the door. And then once we're out the door and we have no ability to change our mind, we have no negotiating leverage, we've got the clock ticking on a 21-month transition, at that point, we get to go and negotiate with the EU27 from a point of real vulnerability and weakness, having given up all of our negotiating leverage. So in a way, the withdrawal agreement is a is a reasonable uh, agreement on just getting out. The problem with it is that fundamentally, um, it puts us into this incredibly weak position. And then there are other reasons to, to object to it. There are multiple different reasons. So, for example, um, the rules on state aid are much tougher than the rules on workers' rights or environmental uh, protections. Um, then there are various other other issues with it. But that core strategic issue is, is the biggest failure in British statecraft in half a century to accept that you would be put into purgatory uh, and then asked to negotiate for half your trade. Yeah, it's, again, it's big. Be- because uh, a lot of people were very angry with the Polish. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, I, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I, I think, I, yeah, I, I think a lot of people were very angry with the status quo in their lives. And part of that was about levels of immigration, no doubt. Um, but fundamentally, what were the drivers of high, level of high levels of immigration? Well, part of it was the European Union rules. But even then, right, we had more immigration coming in from non-European countries than from European countries. Like myself. Right, there we are. Right, they were really angry at you, Riley. Fuck, <laughs> Take fuck this guy. It's about you. Coming um, into our country and trying to change our politics. Yeah, but what I think they were, what I think underlies that was that why was immigration immigration level so high? Because we have an economic model that is based on low wage, low productivity, and therefore needs high levels of immigration in order to get uh, low wage, low productivity workers into the into the labour market. I think that's that's that that does make make quite a bit of sense. I think when I when I sort of said facetiously that sort of people were as angry at the Polish, I think really what it is is that 
is it has become this totemic issue that Britain is no longer what it was in this, even in the 70s, even though the 70s were, you know, by all accounts, not great. Um, it seems like, and this is true, I've noticed this with the sort of, with wow, people want to leave the European Union. Like, we want to go back to, you know, when we had a manufacturing industry, we want to go back to when, you know, there were Sunday trading laws and everyone knew each other. And you know, it, it, as you see their lists of demands, it sort of gets more and more like, oh, you just want to go live in a carry-on film. Um, no, I, th- I think that's unfair. So I think if you, so we've done some some research on on what do people expect, right? So because this is an agenda of the right, there are a lot of people on the right who see Brexit as the opportunity to become hugely deregulated, to take our lax labour standards and make them even weaker, to uh, lower taxes, cut back public services even further, and become a kind of low tax haven just off the European mainland. If you look at what the public want, and particularly what Leave voters wanted, this was not a vote for deregulation. This was a vote for re-regulation. The levels of support for European-derived regulation are absolutely enormous. What the public thought that they were doing was voting to get more protection from globalisation, not less. So the issue is that the EU has been seen as an instrument for globalisation and for amplifying the forces of, of, of globalisation onto the British economy, rather than a safe harbour from it. Now, the reality is that that's actually a choice to do with the uh, decisions made in, in in Westminster, not decisions driven by Brussels. And the way that you know that is you go and visit Finland or Denmark or Germany and see the completely different approach that they've taken there. And so this is, um, this is sort of moving on a little bit to sort of how sort of, if you like, we, we have looked at this problem domestically. Um, like labor has, what has labor's sort of Brexit policy been sort of since day one? What has their strategy been? I mean, I mean, labor has had as many strategies as there are labor MPs in some ways. Um, so I, I don't think that's true, actually. I think labor's had a fairly consistent strategy. I think what, what you I hear- I'm too, I think maybe I'm just too online and follow Chris Leslie too much. <laughs> yeah, but I, think, but I think what people conflate is they say, well, I don't like- uh, what Labour's doing on Brexit, and therefore it has no strategy because it's not the strategy that I think they should have. But that is not the same thing as having no strategy. The strategy's been pretty consistent and pretty clear, I think, actually, from early on. I think if you look at the now in hindsight and you look back to the referendum campaign, there are all these sort of howls of outrage that Jeremy Corbyn didn't express greater levels of enthusiasm for the EU and said it was, you know, maybe a seven out of 10 that he'd give it. Actually, looking back, had you had a more reasonable Remain campaign that wasn't howling how the, you know, sky was going to fall in, but made a more reasoned argument and said, like Corbyn said, you know, Remain and reform, the European Union is not perfect, but nothing's perfect. And actually, we've got a better chance of changing it and improving it and making it work for people from the inside than from the outside then actually maybe that campaign might have been more successful. So I think looking back, uh, a lot of people say, well, it's Cor- somehow Corbyn's fault that the referendum was lost. Well, actually, if you look at the message that Corbyn was delivering in a largely Eurosceptic country, because uh, I think actually the, the levels of love for the European Union, I, I don't think they are high, right? The country is divided on Remain versus Leave, and there are a bunch of hard Remainers, but I still think they represent very much the minority. Absolutely. And a, and a message that was much more circumspect and more cautious might have actually been more successful. It's like it's like a very complicated game of um, the, the, the very ancient art of dual monsters, a.k.a. Uh, the, the game in Yu-Gi-Oh! where, you know, you go... You go- <laughs> 
<laughs> sorry, I'm sorry. He's obsessed. You are obsessed, you say. I, I've been in a room. This is what happens if you lock a man in a cupboard in Albany. Yes. For- yes. This is a Logan Paul social experiment. Uh, yeah. Have you showered recently? Uh, I have. So, so actually, like, for you, have you ever seen the film Old Boy? Right. Uh, oh, I have. okay. Okay. So, like, so Old Boy is very much the same theme, i.e., like, a guy gets, like, shoved into a room for a very long time and he's not sure why, but the room is really nice. So he gets, like, really good food. He has, like, shower. His soaps are replaced regularly. Um, he has this vague Sounds idea. Like a hotel. I was just going to say this is a hotel. Yeah, I mean, this is what I'm in. This is basically, like, you know, outside of, like, the fellowship season, this, is, this place is used as a hotel. Um, it's just a very, it's a very weird and strange experience because, like, last week I was in New York City where there were, like, giant rats and, like, guys who were just, like, shouting things at me for, like, no reason. Um, and now it's just like deer that stare at you at night and stuff. It's very weird. No, I know where you're living. You're living in um, Barton Fink. You're living Barton Fink world. Uh, I'm going to pretend I know what that is. Like we've. You should go to Newport's. Newport's is lovely. Um, it's near there. I think. And get yeah, some baby bourbon. Uh, anyway, I don't. I, I don't want to derail. I don't, don't want to derail the conversation. So please continue. Oh. oh. <laughs> anyway, here's my Yu-Gi-Oh opinion. What? <laughs> Sorry to derail your conversation. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! This is better. Honestly, isolation Hussein is actually better than Ramadan Hussein in terms of weirdness. <laughs> well, can I just say that, like, being outside of the UK, like, I wasn't really paying attention to much news like while I was there anyway, because I feel, I feel like everyone who works in this kind of particular strange spaces, their, their brain has just been made into mush, but you learn it more like when you're outside of the country and number one, people like the main question people ask you is like, Hey, what's happening in Britain? Like everyone's is going insane. Um, and then on the other hand, like you actually not knowing what's going on and you not, you're not really having an explanation. So all I could say was, that, Oh yeah. Like they have some sort of deal. But I'm not really sure what the deal means. All I know is that everyone's mad about it. But everyone's been mad since like two years ago. Well, so. I mean, there was something very, very strange that happened, right? Which is that they dumped 585 pages. On like a Saturday the night, right? Agreement. It was on a Wednesday evening right, at okay. about 8, 8 p.m. With no presentation, none of the major arguments. And so uh, they lost the framing of was this good or bad? And now the Prime Minister's going around trying to say this is a great deal and it's fantastic. And it's just not taken seriously because actually most people have made their minds up by this point and they're saying this is a bad deal and doesn't serve the UK's the UK's interests. And I think the core problem for her is that for Remainers, no deal is ever going to be as good as the deal that we already have. Yeah. And for Leavers, uh, any deal um, is never going to satisfy their, their sort of destructive impulse um, uh, and their allergy towards anything European. And so I think she's just classically fallen between two stools. But she also comprehensively failed to make the argument. I mean, who just dumps it out there without going and saying, well, these are the key points and this is, you know, what this is what's good and this is, you know, where we've compromised, but overall, blah, blah, blah. There was just none of that. It was completely surreal as a political moment. I mean, even Trash Future does previews of shows before we put them out. We just don't, we don't throw, we don't throw them out there. We're, even even we're not that destructive unless we're wearing Joker makeup, in which case, in which case we are. We, in which case we are. You know, it would have been so much better. You know, Theresa May could have sold this deal to both rem- Remainers and Leavers. If, on for, trash if for the Leavers, she had made a Facebook meme <laughs> about how the Europeans were fake people, but um, sometimes you got to give to get, you got to spend money to make money, and it was just like an Instagram inspirational like rise and grind thing. And then she could have satisfied the Remainers if she did like a four hundred tweet thread about game theory. 
and sold the deal that way. Realistically, I think presentation is the key here. Yeah, but giving no narrative, right? I mean, that was just absolutely astonishing. And so other people, other organizations set the narrative. Yeah. Um, So... I, the other thing is is that uh, a, a lot of the levers say that sort of once we leave, we'll be able to strike free trade deals, including with the U.S. Uh, and that's generally thought of to be awesome because of because we're going to be able to get uh, chlorine washed chicken in a giant can, and we're going to get to pay for the NHS. Guys, I mean, I, honestly, I, I find this free trade stuff is such a nonsense. It's just it's it's sadly utterly pathetic because it starts with this like, narrative of victimhood, right? The starting point is somehow we've been kept down, and if we just got these great trade deals, we'd be rich and prosperous and free all at the same time. And the reality is that the problems in the British economy are really deep-seated. The problem is not that we don't have good enough trade deals. The problem is that we don't have enough to sell to the rest of the world. So what exactly is it that we're going to sell to Australia and and, and New Zealand, right? I mean, this is this is just the belies the total nonsense of this theory. And if you look at trade, actually, is one of the gravity model of trade, which is basically um, the bigger the economy and the closer it is, the more trade that will happen between two entities – is probably the most uh, empirically proven thing that exists in economics. So if you have to, in order to believe this nonsense, you basically have to ignore all of the evidence that exists in the entire discipline of economics. So this whole free trade thing is just, it's its quite sad, right? I mean, it, what it speaks to is people who have lost hope and they want this idea that somehow their circumstances can be fixed. And I think one of the one of the issues also with this is that it, it we're solve it we are sort of nuking ourselves to solve a non problem that is the solution to which is basically to make us more like the United States, presumably, right? Because we'd have to if we wanted a free trade deal with the United States, then it's 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 written quite often that it might involve free trade and services, which might include stuff like allowing American health insurers in or relaxing food standards who, in this manner. Who who among us does not want to eat crackers which taste very synthetic, and then you find out there's 35 grams of sugar in them. Which has really just been... Mu- yeah, which is really- 35 grams of corn syrup, let's be clear. Yeah, which is like... Because it's subsidized, because I mean, I mean, like, of Iowa. This has really been like my experience with America. Like, I found it very difficult to find fruit. Um, it is extremely hard to find like water in most places, uh, but you can get soda anywhere, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> you can get Dasani anyway. anyway. Yes. And it's just like, even like tap water tastes really weird. Um, yeah, that's gross. I had a bodega sandwich last week, a chicken bodega sandwich, and you can definitely taste like how weirdly synthetic that all, that all is. Um, and, I, and I remember like just, you know, being sick the next morning from my weird bodega sandwich and thinking, wow, Brexit really does mean Brexit. <laughs> <laughs> Well, but the deep, the deeper thing that is is here, right, is that most trade deals these days focus much less on tariff barriers and much more on non-tariff barriers. So about whether you've got the same regulatory regime. So the idea that you would end up aligning your regulations to anything but the single market when the single market accounts for nearly half your trade is completely ludicrous. And to a certain ex- extent, right, the, the Europeans have always known through this this negotiation that whatever Britain ends up doing and whatever deal is struck, the basic economic reality is that, you know, the rest of the European continent is 35 miles off the coast of Kent, means that British firms will end up aligning themselves to European regulations in order to sell to the European 
market. So it's just, it, it, it's a, it, frankly, it's a total nonsense. And the idea that somehow Britain as a country of 65 million people is going to be able to strike a fantastic trade deal with all these other economies around the world just isn't true. I mean, you look at the, the facts, you can make some comparisons. You look at the trade deal with South Korea, um, it's really striking. The EU has a very similar trade deal with South Korea as Australia has. The EU deal takes away most of the barriers within, I think, something like seven years. And the Australian deal does pretty much the same thing over 25 years, because in the end, uh, scale trumps agility in trade negotiations. What I think we're forgetting, though, is that, of course, once, once we begin to negotiate a trade deal with the United States, then we get to make all of Britain into a 40 million hole Trump golf course. It's going to be fantastic. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that, now that's what I now that because that's the thing. All of these Brexit, all like a lot of the hard right Brexiteers would be thrilled to live in like the caddy shack of Donald Trump's golf course because then they get to be aligned with the man who's protecting the West. So I think it's it's partly that, but I think actually for a lot of these uh, hard Brexiteers, I think you can't you can't try and understand this as a project from a kind of intellectual ideological point of view. I think this is principally a psychological condition for the for the leaders of the Leave campaign. I think that's true for ordinary Leave voters, but I think for the people who are promoting this idea at the top, I think that it's a sort of desperate and pathetic search for an account of heroism in their own lives, right? They look to their fathers who fought in the Second World War, and they kind of then say to themselves, well, how do I have an account of being a hero in my own life? And it's battling this great European enemy. And that's why all the imagery is about war and conflict, because primarily what I think is driving, you know, the sort of Jacob Rees-Moggs of the world I, and, and Nigel Farage of the world, I, I think, frankly, they're being driven um, by psychological factors, not really by political, ideological or economic factors. Thanatos, baby, we all got the death drive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is why I say the, the, the politics of our moment is summed up with the idea of setting yourself on fire and dragging yourself to hell because they're bored. Yeah, but it's more pathetic than that. It's yeah. not just about being bored, right? It's this idea that they somehow want to live up to the expectations of their fathers, well, right? Ian Duncan Smith is a great example of that. In some way, I feel like it's, when I say bored, I mean, it's almost like a spiritual ennui where they've looked, yeah. they have looked around at our, and that's the thing, this is one of the roots of fascism, like, it's, I'm, is that fascism does have in its way a kind of critique of the emptiness of modern life. Because it's like, you look around and say, is this all there is? And the difference is when fascists ask themselves that question, or even just reactionaries ask themselves that question, they say, this, this is all there is, and so I'm going to create my own destiny by being as this great warrior. I, I'm going to live out, I, I've, I've looked into the Pret-a-Manger, and I've decided that I have this death drive that I have to live out. <laughs> yeah, and it's, there is a reason that it is, it is um, a particular group of uh, older men who are doing it, right? And it's it's men who have tried to attain power and not succeeded, and I think that tells you a lot about uh, Brexit as a as a move the, the leadership of the Brexit movement because I don't think that's true of a lot of Leave voters who I think were voting for something that they think is is very different from what what the people at the top who have been driving this have have had in mind. So in fact, just sort of coming back around to what we were what we were mentioning earlier was labor strategy. Again, I was being facetious when I was saying there are as many strategies as MPs, largely just to make fun of the Chris Leslies of the world. But you and I have talked about this in the past, that the labor strategy was relatively, was not just relatively, it was coherent from the beginning. But the hard remainers, 
um, who also equally live in a fantasy world. It's just they want to go back to 2013, not 1973. Well, 2006, yeah. Yeah, thereabouts. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because um, it's pre-financial crisis, yeah, pre- right? The world is the world is pre-crash. Yeah. And so Labour's strategy, this is, a, as, as we've discussed before, has basically been to allow the Tories to tear themselves to shreds, more or less. So I think, I think that's part of it. But I think the other part of it is, is firstly, I think, you know, they are, have actually been sincere when they've said they respect the referendum result. And that's because if you can be as pro-European as you like, right, but the first value that you would have is to be a Democrat. And if you have a plebiscitary moment in politics, you can't just say, well, you gave an answer we don't like, and therefore we're going to ignore it. So I think Labour's actually sincere when it said accepts the result uh, of the referendum and respects it. I think the next thing then was to say, well, okay, well, what's the job of the opposition? Well, they don't have the civil service. They don't have all the resources. They're not in the room for the negotiations. And therefore, they say their job is to hold the government to account. And that makes sense. Why would they want to run as a political party? Why would they want to run against 52% of the population. I mean, that's a completely ludicrous strategy for a political party to say, well, our stance is going to be to run against 52% of the population. So instead they said, no, no, our job uh, as the official opposition is to hold the government to account. And I think what you see there is is a two, two dimensions to that. One is setting tests based on what the government itself has said. So there's a lot of mocking of the six tests and they say, well... So what's the most important of the six tests? So the, 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 the six tests get a lot of attention, particularly the one that says uh, the exact same benefits of the single market. And the important thing there is that that phrase was used by David Davis in the House of Commons as Brexit secretary, giving a commitment that the deal the government would negotiate would deliver the exact same benefits. And when Labour put out its six tests... You've got to remember that the Prime Minister said, absolutely, accept these six tests and we will meet them, right? That was the response. So the first thing was holding the government to a high standard on what a good deal would look like. The second thing was Labour saying, well, okay, well, what would Labour's position be? Now everyone says, oh, Labour doesn't have a position, which I find honestly baffling in that Labour has very clearly, uh, in I think February of this year, said that it would support a new comprehensive and permanent customs union. So that's the first part. So on the customs unit, it's a position very, very clear, uh, in which Labour would secure a British say. There are a dozen customs unions around the world. In all of those customs unions, with perhaps the exception of the Turkey-EU customs union, uh, the countries within them have a say. So perfectly reasonable negotiating objective. And the second thing they've said is a strong single market deal based on shared institutions in a new institutional framework, right? Which is basically saying a similar kind of relationship to Norway, but one that is bespoke to Britain and reflects Britain's priorities more accurately and reflects the fact that Norway is a small economy and Britain is still the world's, I think, sixth sixth largest economy. So actually, Labour has a pretty clear position. It's just the reason that everyone says, oh, Labour doesn't have a position. What they mean is... I wish Labour had a position of hard remain. Since it doesn't, I'm going to say that they have no position. It's just total, total nonsense. So the position of hard remain, uh, the psychology of it, is one of the most interesting in British politics, I, I think. Like, I'm fascinated by sort of what's going on in these people's brains. Well, I don't think it's that hard to understand, right? I mean, these people have had the narrative of their that there is a gap between the lives they expected to lead and the lives that they are now leading. And that is the core issue. And for a lot of these hard remainers, 
that takes on two dimensions. One is about the relationship with the European Union and their sense of Britain's status in the world and therefore their own status. And the other dimension is their own particular position of power and influence within uh, the UK Labour Party. And so what you're seeing is the dissonance that is there between the lives they expected to lead, you know, in the EU being a powerful and high status country and uh, in a powerful and influential position within the Labour Party. Since they don't have those two things, that is why they have completely lost their mind. It's also because they're like furries. We're just like a fandom, right? <laughs> I mean, I think a fandom actually is sort of one of the good, again one of the good ways to describe yeah. it. Yeah, someone, oh, like someone like Jolly and Mom, for example. Wait, it- I disagree because I don't think it's a fandom for the. Mm. What do you I, think I, it is? I, I don't think what is motivating a lot of these people is a real affection for the European Union. I think what is motivating these people is antipathy towards. Jeremy Corbyn as leader of the Labour Party. And the way that you know that is that the most prominent of the campaigners, Chucker Umana, you know, he ha- had an article, I think, in uh, not that long after the referendum saying under no circumstances should there be a second referendum. And then the following year, he wrote articles saying that it's absolutely vital that free movement ends. And in fact, you also see a lot of them, uh, the, a lot of them who are basically have been spent the last several years saying it was advisory, we should cancel Brexit, we shouldn't listen, Russia was involved, leave overspend, I stub my toe, my stomach hurts, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of the, some of them are now saying, act, and these are people like John Rentoul or Jolly and Mom are now saying, no, we must take the deal. We have to take this deal because my, because if we don't take this deal, then Britain will be done. Basically, yeah, and it's a political hoax. The idea that the alternative is no deal is completely ridiculous. And then I think if you then look at where Labour's strategy, the logical conclusion of Labour's strategy is to say, well, having Labour having set a, a set of tests to hold the government to account on their own promises, and Labour having set out a perspective on what a good deal looks like, they've then used that yardstick to judge the government's deal. They found that it falls short very substantially, because of course it it does, because in the end it has been a negotiation between different parts of the Conservative Party, and what they have delivered is the hardest possible Brexit that doesn't wreck the Good Friday Agreement, right? That's what the Withdrawal Agreement and Political Declaration actually deliver. And Labour has said, well, this isn't good enough. It doesn't meet the tests. Uh, It doesn't match our perspective on what a good deal looks like. And so the Labour Party has then gone on to say, well, as a result, there's no way they can possibly support it. So why I don't understand why anyone is surprised by that. So, I mean, thinking about this then just a little further, I'd like to, just because because this is probably going to come out on Tuesday, (laughs) I'd like to avoid making any hard predictions. But what's the parliamentary arithmetic looking like for this deal? So it, it, it seems at this stage almost inconceivable that this deal gets through the House of Commons. And the reason for that is that right now, uh, the DUP are not supporting it. So that's 10 votes. Uh, the Lib Dems, uh, 10 out of 12 of their MPs have said that they definitely won't support it. Quite how the other two can support the government on on this. But I guess it's a kind of very Lib Dem thing to take your principal commitment and then trash it. I mean, it's a kind of fine political tradition of the Liberal Democrats to do that. Uh, you've got the SNP who have said very clearly that they can't support it. And I think for the vast majority of Labour MPs will not be able to vote for it. I think a small number will Kate vote Hoey in favour. No, even, really? Kate, even Kate Hoey has said that she can't because of what happens with Northern Ireland. Oh, right. Yeah, because right? what specific, now correct me if I'm wrong. What happens in Northern Ireland is that this deal basically just sort of calves Northern Ireland off of the UK a little bit and and sort of says you stay in the customs union with Ireland, correct? Well, what what the what the 
withdrawal agreement has as the backstop basically says under all scenarios, uh, Northern Ireland will remain aligned in terms of its regulations to the single market and within a customs union. And if the Brexiteers deliver some magical drone-based solution, maybe that's not true. But in a world that isn't run by Harry Potter, basically Northern Ireland stays in the single market and customs union. So understandably, Northern Irish businesses have come out strongly for the deal because of course they would, because they would be the most advantaged part of the UK uh, in terms of a destination for investment, because they have a hard guarantee that under all circumstances, they basically stay in the single market and the customs union. Um, And so they've come out very strongly for it. But the natural consequence for that is that if the rest of the UK, so Great Britain, uh, then wants to go and strike these trade deals, then there has to be a border um, in the Irish Sea. And understandably, if you're the DUP and you care about the union, um, clearly this is not in your interest. So the DUP cannot support it. Kate Hoey is originally Northern Irish, very close to Arlene Foster, and has has clearly said that she won't support it. The other thing is that Kate Hoey takes her whip from the uh, European Research Group, led by Jacob Rees-Mogg, and they're not supporting it. So it's pretty clear even Kate Hoey would vote against it. So I think the number of Labour MPs who back it will be very, very small. Maybe a few more will abstain, but I'd be surprised if if the numbers voting in favour are uh, probably single digits, the number abstaining probably single digits, and then I think something like 90 Tory MPs have already said that they plan to vote against and so, I mean, A, it's hilarious that this is how we're, we're reversing the result of the Battle of the Boyne. Um, but uh, additionally, um, so what does that, a lot of people are sort of, I mean, I, I'm guilty of this as well, in sort of believing that if this could bring down the government to potentially lead to an election. Do you think there's any credence to that idea? So I think it's unlikely because you'd have to get, you'd have to believe that the deal will be voted down and then uh, the government and the DUP would uh, vote for a general election, which I think is extremely unlikely. So I think a general election is not impossible. And I think it's it's not an unreasonable position for Labour to say, well, if the government has failed on its major measure in the parliament and, uh, and has failed to negotiate something that parliament can support, then naturally the natural consequence of that is to have a general election. And certainly until a fixed-term parliament act, um, a piece of legislation like uh, the meaningful vote on the Brexit deal would be considered a confidence vote. And if the government lost it, you would automatically have a general election. Because of the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, uh, you have to have a separate and specially formulated motion of confidence in the government uh, in order to trigger an election. And so it seems very unlikely to believe that Turkey's would vote for Christmas. And so I think a general election is unlikely, but it's not an unreasonable position for the opposition parties, I think Labour, SNP, uh, all the others, to be arguing that there should be one. It's not an unreasonable position. So the question is, what happens uh, if there isn't a general election? I think there are a couple of different scenarios. The first is that she may just put her vote back up, put the deal back up again after seeing chaos. So she loses it the first time. Then you see the pound tumble, forcing up the cost of import, imports, uh, maybe some panic buying of food and medicine amongst the general public and a kind of chaos in financial markets. And then basically May comes back and says, look what you've done, you irresponsible fuckers. Um, Here's my deal again. Do you really want to be heading over the cliff? And if you don't, vote for it. And it's a possibility that 
that that's the way that it gets through. That spooks some people, basically. Yeah, that could spook some people. But the moment with the parliamentary arithmetic with so many people with their heels dug in to voting against it, I think even then, since it doesn't feel the numbers are going to be close, it'd be very, very hard to make that happen. Now, the alternative that's in the newspapers today is Plan B, which allegedly is being led by uh, Philip Hammond. Basel Royale. And... Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's what we're going to do is we're going to take the entire we're European shell Brussels. We're going to take the entire European research group and we're going to fly them over Europe and then they'll drop out of the plane and they'll have to pick up whatever weapons they can find and then whichever is the last money to see that. Saw, the last one standing. I, saw, I sort of feel like, I, I, I sort of feel like the that. inevitable conclusion of any deal is going to be like the purge. Like I feel that's the only way like things things can really be sorted out. No, we need a purge. We need to be be a purge country. That would be sweet. So what is plan B for Brexit? Well, plan B is to go in the opposite direction and then to put up a a Norway-style EEA deal and to put that to Parliament on the basis that when there was a vote about the EEA, there was an amendment for the EEA uh, uh, earlier this year, I think in about in June time, there was an amendment that was tabled uh, for Britain to join the EEA and that I think something like 70 Labour MPs rebelled against uh, the Labour whip, which I think was to abstain, and voted in favour of the amendment for the EEA. And so the theory there would be that if May could hold her coalition together, that then she could get these 70 Labour MPs to support it or at least abstain, and maybe that's how she'd get it over the line. Now, I I think that is going to be really tough really tough because the, the fundamental problem there is that the EEA is basically EU membership, but without a say. And I think the response to that would be, well, on the ballot in 2016, there wasn't an option that there was an option to leave. There was an option to remain. There wasn't an option to stay effectively as an EU member, but have no say in it. And so I think at that point, I, I suspect that she would just alienate all Remainer voters who would say, well, what's the point in being in the EU without a say? And all leave voters who would say, well, we thought we voted to leave the EU. Why are we staying in it? So I, I'm very sceptical of the prospects of success for that, that plan B. I can see the logic as to why they might try it, but I think it will be so unpopular in the country um, as to find it very hard to believe that it would, it would be a runner in Parliament. So what's what's the third possibility? Because so far it seems like there are two things that won't work. Well, then if the government has then tried Plan A, which is a hard Brexit that you know disrupts the economy, because don't forget the political declaration doesn't say frictionless trade, so it does say new barriers to trade, making our trading position worse than it's been uh, in the past. Um, plan B of the EEA style option, I think it's going to have so little public support that I can't see that being a runner. Uh, general election, I can't see the Tories going for it. I think that means that the government might be forced or might have forced itself into a position of a second referendum. And I think at that point, uh, you know, everyone will have to consider what the options are. I think Labour has said pretty clearly it would say all options should be on the table. And I think Labour will have to make a determination as to which option it backs. But I think under that scenario, what's interesting about it is that it's very clearly uh, the government's failure that would have brought around a second referendum, not the people's vote campaigners or any of that lot. 
I think that's that's actually kind of where I, I want to take us now, which is a quick fire dispelling of some Brexit myths. Uh, and this is this comes from the People's Vote lot. I hate that name too. It's so annoying because it, it's just the first thing you think is, well, you know, you're calling it a people's vote. Well, how is that different from the vote the people had two years ago? It's well, just it's the right people's it's vote. Just, for yeah, exactly. It's just idiotic. Yeah. So it's the one of the one of the people's vote sort of things that they tend to trumpet, um, or indeed many of the sort of um, sort of hard remain people that I know. Sort of, they always say Labour would be twenty points ahead if Jeremy Corbyn would only come out against Brexit. I, I just don't understand it because if you want to see a party that it, that has come out firmly and clearly against Brexit and so she just called the whole thing off. That's the Lib Dems. And they're currently down in sort of, what, high single digits? Yeah. Something like that. Well, so it's, it's clearly just demonstrably not true. And the other factor is just if you look at how public opinion is divided, yes, things have tipped a bit more towards Remain, but they certainly haven't tipped by a decisive margin. So I, I personally find that just a bizarre point of view. Well, it's, it's more fantasism. It's back to that sort of magical thinking that if we had the right hero who would say the, who would say the right words, then we could sort of magic ourselves into and, the right and, position. And he may or may not have a dragon dick. <laughs> he may, exactly, exactly. Big dragon energy. <laughs> Big dragon energy. Right, uh, and so, so well, I think it's actually worse than that, right? So if you had... Um, can it be worse than that? It, it can. Um, I actually think quite the reverse. I think if Labour had adopted a hard Remain position, said it's ignoring 52% of the population, doesn't give a fuck about the referendum, and uh, thinks that people should be made to uh, have a second vote because they didn't give the right answer the first time round, I think probably what you would have seen would have been much more unity on the government benches. And I think May's deal would have had a much higher chance of being voted through. So I think I think actually it's quite the reverse. I think if Labour had adopted that position, they would have uh, increased the probability of a Tory Brexit occurring. The, the second myth I want to talk about is uh, the uh, if we leave the European Union, Jeremy Corbyn won't be able to do socialism. Well, so I, I think this is, again, a kind of slightly bizarre point of view. So you have the kind of idiocy of the Lexiteers who say, um, that the EU somehow prevents socialism. And then you just look at the empirically observable facts, which is, you know, if you take Finland, the size of the state as a share of national income is 50% larger than the UK, right? Finland is 57% of GDP, so that's a majority of national income is in the government sector. Um, and you compare that to the UK, which is on a trajectory by the 2020s to be at 38%. So clearly this idea that somehow you can't be uh, in a socialist country uh, inside the EU is a is a total nonsense. Inequality in Denmark and Sweden is fivefold difference in income uh, between the, the the bottom decile and the top decile, and in the UK it's elevenfold. So the, the sort of Lexit argument just doesn't stack up on the facts. And then the argument that you go out of the EU, and therefore the natural response. Uh, is to somehow have more austerity is equally stupid because if you end up in a position whereby you damage your trading relationships uh, and you have chronically deficient demand, in order to kickstart the economy and get it going again, you're probably going to have to have um, an emergency fiscal stimulus. I mean, even Philip Hammond is saying that, that he's preparing fiscal power for that. So if one of the uh, people who has sustained austerity thinks that the logical response to leaving the EU 
uh, without a deal is going to have to be uh, a fiscal expansion, it would be perverse for Labour to say, well, we come into office outside the EU and somehow pick up on where George Osborne left off. I mean, I just find that incomprehensible. And the other thing I, I think is that the people who make the point of uh, so we can't do socialism if we leave the European Union because we'll lose too much GDP or whatever have accepted a sort of fa- a folk ec- a right wing folk economics framing of what austerity is and does like it it doesn't save money it just disciplines workers right like it's not, it's it's the I, I'm it's astonished mad. it's that, just completely yeah, mad it's it's it makes absolutely no sense um, the other one I want to talk about now is that there are people saying, well, we should cancel Brexit unilaterally, either because, you know, Russia sent some emails and, like, you know, Aaron Banks went to Moscow and that the Leave campaign sort of overspent through some weird fashion student. I just, again, this is one of those things where I just, I don't understand it. I mean, telling people that they were duped and that they're idiots seems like a really poor way to persuade them that that the country should take a different course. I mean, if you want to, I just was on my way here, I saw some disgusting tweet from one of these FBP people uh, saying how vile our country is because she was wearing a Remain, uh, an EU hoodie and people were looking at her contemptuously. And it just, she concluded that this country was just full of vile people it's, who hated it. Hoodies aren't street, foreigners. it's not streetwear anymore. Everyone's in the crew next. I was <laughs> telling Riley about this. He was like, let's make some, tra- let's make some track future hoodies, right? It's like, no, people yeah. don't wear hoodies anymore. They wear crewnecks. Crewnecks is streetwear, right? I mean, the, the, right. And the, the, the reality is that the government sent a leaflet to every household saying, this is why the government definitely thinks that you should vote Remain. It did it before the spending rules kicked in. It spent, I think, £10 million or thereabouts sending that leaflet, you know, busting any kind of reasonable spending limits. You had the full uh, infrastructure of the state thrown behind the Remain campaign, plus all of big business, all behind the Remain campaign. Huge donors pouring money into different political parties, into the main campaigns and so on. And the idea that people saw a few tweets for some Russian bots and then thought, oh, I know, I'll probably vote to leave, I just think is such a nonsense. And it's, again, it's it's a way of absolving themselves of any responsibility for having got Britain into such a state in 2016, that people felt, you know what, I'll, I'll vote to leave because it's gotten a destructive law because anything's got to be better than the state we're in. You know, you've got to remember the Remain campaign in 2016 went around saying, don't risk the economic recovery. Well, the facts are that outside of London and the southeast, not in Northern Ireland, Wales, Scotland, nor any region of England other than London and the southeast had GDP per capita recovered to its pre-crisis peak. There had not been an economic recovery, and their message was, don't risk the economic recovery, which is pure lunacy. It's it's the I think the I think you're you're right. A big part of it is about sort of see is sort of trying to revise history and say, well, actually, no, we were right. In but it's a no, we were, were honorable. They you know, were shit. We were honorable. We played by the rules. They didn't play by the rules. They didn't play by the rules, and they were shit. Yeah, and that and the other idea I think is that this is and you can see this in America as well with the sort of you know obsessives over Trump Russia and they're ones who are always following Robert Mueller who are sort of replying to Donald Trump with like you know pictures of a jail cell or whatever there are people who th- who who are wanting this deus ex machina right they want this procedural trick because they've all seen so many movies where all is lost right 
and there's this final moment where everything seems like it's at its darkest, and then something just something happens almost by accident, like so the villain oversteps just a little bit, or some coincidence by some coincidence, or, yeah, or whatever. There was a rule; something comes out of the woodwork uh, and snatches victory from the jaws of defeat. And people sort of keep wait. They're they're sitting in the third act of this movie, like waiting for it to end and waiting for it to end satisfyingly because they're saying, "I want to get off. I want to go back. I feel like I'm dreaming." Like they have, they're sort of driving themselves out of reality because they can't accept this sort of that it's become so unpalatable for them. No, absolutely. It's just it's a to- it's a total nonsense. And also, you know, it, it actually harms the pro-European cause very substantially. You know, when you see this kind of shit, I think you know it's a wonder that. That so many so many sections of the public end up wanting to support Remain when they have to listen to this complete nonsense and the kind of aesthetic and cultural contempt that the kind of hard Remain elite show for half the country is disgraceful. In fact, this is sort of then where I, I want to get this because I'd like to. I think I'd like to sort of wrap up on this concept, and this is actually from an article that you sent me uh, that Paul Mason wrote, and this is the end. The the end sort of paragraph of that article. I'm just going to read it now. Uh, Mason writes, I feel sorry for people who voted for Brexit thinking we could, quote, just walk away from Europe. It was a lie then, and it has been proved so now. Rhys Mogg and his cohorts can just shrug and walk back to their mansions, but the people who bought their lies will rightly feel betrayed, and those of us who oppose them need to manage what happens next carefully. All kinds of far-right thugs and racists stand ready on the streets against the betrayal of Brexit, Parliament has to be seen to do the maximum possible to achieve what the referendum result mandated. But in the end, the final say should once again be given to the British people. So I, I, I had a, I wrote a medium post last weekend or the weekend before last, which basically made the same argument. I think in the end, the circumstances under which a, referend, a second referendum is legitimate is only if Parliament has failed and the government has failed to deliver on the instruction that the people gave in 2016, and the only way out of the impasse is a second referendum. I think those are the only circumstances under which it's democratically legitimate to go back to the people. I also think, by the way, that only Labour can win a second referendum for Remain. And I think the really crucial uh, point for Labour to make is that Labour cannot promise um, uh, it, it, Labour should oppose Tory Brexit, but also Labour should oppose Tory Remain. And I think if Labour does lead a second referendum campaign, it will need to argue against the hard Remain elite who have been promoting their own self-interest and the interests of the kind of corporate elite. And I think Labour will have to run against Tory Brexit. And I think it will have to build its own distinctive message. I think if there's a second referendum campaign, I think Labour should have nothing to do with the cross-party campaign group and should run its own its own uh, uh, distinctive Labour message on on Remain if those circumstances come about. But I think the most important thing is that it has to be clear that those circumstances have come about not because of uh, Labour campaigning for a second referendum, but because the Tories have failed to deliver Brexit on its own terms and that there is no other alternative. The, uh, the, other, the other piece of this, of this um, paragraph that I want to pull out is I think Mason quite rightly says that the psychological shock to a lot of hard Brexiteers, many of whom have fash elements, um, 
is going he's saying that it's there is a real chance that he says far right thugs and racists stand ready to go to the streets against the betrayal of Brexit. I mean, there I think there's a real possibility that if a second referendum is called, then that we have to we almost think we have to understand that this is a risk. Of course there's a risk. I, I, in fact I don't think it's a risk. I think it's a it's an it's a near certainty. And I think, you know, no one should imagine for a moment that there is any good path for this country uh, in the in the immediate term. If we leave with May's deal, uh, the destination is a hard Brexit that will damage our economy uh, and uh, uh, and damage people's living standards. If we have a second referendum and we remain, I think there will be an enormous feeling of betrayal uh, that will be a real feeling of betrayal. And I think in addition to that, uh, I think you will get the far right who will seek to exploit that moment. And I think that that's why the only responsible group who can who can campaign for Remain has to be the Labour Party, because it's the Labour Party that can promise that a Remain for the future is not taking it back to a Tory Remain. It's not taking it back to the European Union of 2016, that Labour will deliver reforms to our relationship with the European Union from within it, and that Labour will invest and rebuild and take care of the communities that have been so betrayed for a generation uh, since the rampant deindustrialization of the 1980s and the destruction to communities. And Labour has to promise that it will rebuild the country. And I think in those circumstances where Labour says remain, reform, rebuild, um, are, are the only hope of healing a divided a divided country. Um, but who knows how this plays out? I mean, I think that's that's a probably as, as as good a place as any to end it because very rarely do we get to end this on a positive, if unsure, note. So uh, I'm going to say, uh, Tom, thank you very much for making your way down to the guy household today. It's been fun. It's yeah. been fun. And I'm looking forward to seeing the the, the pictures from uh, anime. Dragon uh, dick. Dragon, dragon dick, dick. Dragon dick. Drag- <laughs> can, we, can we call can we call the episode Dragon Dick? I guess we can't really. Totally. <laughs> We're gonna, I, you I, totally can. We, well, we can call it Dragon Dick. Everyone's going to be so confused. They'll be completely confused. <laughs> Dragon Dick and Brexit. Um, as per usual, uh, our uh, we we are supported by Patreon. Uh, if you like, you can get a second uh, episode of the show if you subscribe for five pa- five pounds five dollars a month. There, um, you can also commodify your descent with a T-shirt from Lil Comrade. Uh, you could have, you could get Edie to print uh, big dragon energy on it, for example. <laughs> That'd be pretty funny. Um, and finally, uh, thank you as always to our theme song. It is called "Here We Go" by Ginseng. You can find it on Spotify. It's extraordinarily good. In any case, uh, I think that's it. Good night, everybody. Good.